Blog Talk Radio. Today on Backroom Politics, breaking news out of Charlottesville, Virginia, the tragic story of former state senator Cray Deeds and the tragic story involving his son. We're going to cover that. Also, we're going to talk about Obama's apology last week. Did it satisfy the critics or his base? And then where were you that day in November, 50 years later after the John F. Kennedy assassination? Questions, comments, and thoughts still reign supreme here on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon, everybody out there in Rio Land. It is Tuesday, and it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday is he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing the 2nd Congressional District of Washington State. He is the Honorable Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hello, Justin. And to my 11 o'clock today, he is the former longtime Senate staffer, former Undersecretary of Commerce, represent, or serving under at last count four presidents. He is a very distinguished fellow at the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my 12 o'clock, she is the former House Counsel for the Homeland Security Committee under Penny Thompson, former General Counsel for the Maritime Administration under President Barack Obama. She is... Uh, the Honorable Denise Krepp. Hi, Denise. Welcome Hello. back. Hello, Justin. And to my right, ironically, he is the former executive director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Virginia, or great state of Maryland, rather. He is longtime Washington insider. It's a long day. A lot of stuff to get to, Carl. Carl Tuvin. Hi, Carl. I know I'm a friend of Terry McAuliffe's, but I am from Maryland. <laughs> yeah, we just want to make sure of that, too. Uh, lots, of, lots of news to get to right now, but we want, to start, we want to open up today with the breaking news coming out of Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, for those who have not been seeing the news out there, uh, something that's getting a lot of attention nationally is uh, former state senator and former Democratic gubernatorial candidate uh, Cray, uh, Cray Deeds, uh, a Democrat out of uh, central western Virginia, uh, was at his home this morning where his son uh, allegedly uh, tried to stab his father in their home and uh, then committed suicide himself. It is, uh, according to Virginia State Police, in a statement just released a few minutes ago, a, the working scenario is an apparent attempted murder slash suicide. Uh, now, why do we bring this up? Number one, this is a tragic, tragic event, too. For those who are in the uh, National Capital Region, uh, Cray Deeds has been a, a long-time uh, player in state and even a little bit in the federal political scene. A uh, strong Democrat, a moderate Democrat, and was well-liked by both parties while he served 
uh, in the House of Delegates down in Richmond. But uh, and he still serves. He still serves as a Senate, right? Let me correct that rather. Uh, but he is uh, a, a very respected politician in, in all circles, and anybody that knows him just says that uh, great things about the man. Just being a, a very kind, compassionate human being. In an unfortunate scenario, his son yesterday was taken in for a uh, psychiatric hold after making insinuations of harming himself or others. He was released yesterday evening, according to several sources. Uh, the senator, uh, Senator Craig Deeds, then brought him back to his house in uh, western Virginia, where uh, early this morning or during the night, apparently an altercation happened. Uh, Craig Deeds' son attempted to take his life with a knife, uh, and then, after realizing what he'd done, went to another room and then has taken his own life with a single gunshot wound. Uh, this brings on so many questions, but the reason why we're so starting up with this is this brings up the question, this is not a gun rights issue, this is not a, uh, a, any other issue, but I wanted to bring this up to open it up because it, 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 it again, in another situation of violence dictating the headlines, we see another situation of why mental health is such a crisis in this country right now. Uh, Alan, why don't we start with you? I mean, you know, when we talk about, uh, you know, an individual being put on a psychiatric hold, according to several sources, uh, he was obviously, obviously a troubled individual yesterday, and something set him off. Why should all of us pay attention to this story, let alone care about this story? Well, there's an enormous amount of mental illness in this country and in other countries. People don't understand it. Even those who observe it up close in the family have trouble understanding exactly what it's all about. Um, so there are people who are born with problems. There are people who suffer tra uh, trauma as children. There is an enormous uh, uh, incidence of so-called PTSD, post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, of, return of, of people who have served in the military. Um, we're really beginning to recognize it now in the last uh, decade or so. Um, but that's been around ever since there has been war. People traumatized by war, they would come home and they didn't call it PTSD. They would call it somebody being shell-shocked. Uh, there were other, other, other terms. Mental illness is all around us. It's not, fortunately, uh, and very often going to lead to violence of the type we're talking about. But until, as a society, we can get over the notion that this is, this is, uh, is an illness that requires medical care and treatment, um, we're, we're, we we're, said get over the notion. Get over. Well, we need to accept the notion. Yes. Thank you. We we need to get, accept the notion um, that it's an illness needing and deserving of treatment, um, or we're going to lose a lot of uh, a lot of people who could be who could be healed, and we're going to we're we're going to suffer a lot of damage um, to to the sick individuals and those around them. Um, there's 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 no way to prevent every kind of disastrous incident, and, and this is part of our ignorance. There's, there's low-level, temporary, 
mental disorder, there's high level schizophrenic, paranoid schizophrenia that, that may require some kind of, of uh, institutionalization even for a, for a long term mm -hmm. and everything in between. But the, one of the big battles in, in healthcare in America, and it's something that was part of the, uh, the whole Obamacare debate, is are we going to begin to treat mental health like we treat other illnesses? Well, you know, that, that, let me just jump in here real quick. I mean, right now, the, the U.S., according to several sources, uh, it is estimated that the, the U.S. spends about $113 billion on mental health treatment right now. That is about 5.5% roughly of what the nation spends on health care alone. And of that, uh, you know, when we look at other countries, Congressman now. You know, you have Egypt spends 9% of its total health budget on mental health treatment. We don't even come close. You would think that with all of the talk after Newtown and all of the talk after Colorado, both tragic events, both tragic shootings, that this would have gotten somebody's attention and said, look, we've got to spend more time on mental health issues. We ha and we haven't even touched on the PTSD issues on vets coming back, just on mental health as a whole. Why hasn't Congress embraced this? I think that there is, uh, amongst the American people, a reluctance to let go of kind of the John Wayne concept of what men are. <clears throat> and men, John Wayne doesn't go crazy. John Wayne doesn't cry. John Wayne doesn't have mental illness. Uh, John Wayne is strong and capable and he takes care of the problems. And I think, I think this whole idea that these people should just straighten up prevents, I don't know how many members actually believe that, but in the back of their heads, I think that's there. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons we don't have more, uh, more funding and a better program for dealing with it. Denise Crop. I, I agree with you. I think it's ingrained. I mean, I, one of the questions I was asked when I got my security clearance was, did I ever have any mental problems? Did I ever go on to see somebody? And you know, this is the same form that everybody has to fill out when you go for security clearance. So if you want your security clearance, the inference is, hope you haven't had any problems, and if you had, you better start lying about it. And that's been a huge problem. There seems to be a stigma where people say, geez, you know, if I have a problem, I can't admit to it because I'm not going to be the John Wayne person. Or if I do admit to it, I don't want to tell anybody about it, and I want to hide it so nobody else knows about it. Well, and look what happened to the vice presidential candidate and George McGovern. Right. He'd, he'd had some Tom Eagleton. Tom Eagleton out of Missouri back in 72. That's right. Uh, Carl, you had a thought. Yeah, I think that I think that many people are still afraid to, to come out and admit that they have problems. Uh, families try to... <coughs> try to to, to bury it, you know, he's okay, no problem, don't worry about him, he'll be all right. And, and you know, it, we just kind of hide that. As far as money is concerned, I think if uh, somebody went to the Congress and said, we want money for mental health, there'd be certain people in the House that would say, no, you can't spend that money. But, but you know, Carl, I mean, there, there are several noted politicians who suffer from mental illness, you look at, for example, Patrick Kennedy, former representative out of Rhode Island, Democrat. Uh, he publicly acknowledged when he was running for his freshman term that he had suffered uh, uh, from bipolar depression as well as uh, a, a chemical dependency. 
Alan Moore, this normally would have, you know, taken front stage, and you would think that somebody like Patrick Kennedy would be an advocate for something like this. There are a lot of advocates for this. Uh, When you said that when you compared what the U.S. spends on on mental health to what Egypt spends and simply picked a percentage, you gave a very misleading notion. Okay. Egypt has a... Has a, has, a, has, a, has a poor, weak health system in general. They end up spending not very much on health and about 9%, apparently, according to your data, on mental health. We spend, according to your numbers, 113 or $115 billion a year on mental health. That's a massive amount of money. Um, many, many, an increasing number of health insurers include mental health benefits, uh, in, in the Obamacare legislation, mental health is assured. It's not, you know, it's not just a matter, sorry, sorry, Carl, of going and saying, gee, whatever we're spending, we need more. Let's go get it. Um, you know, it's always a balancing act of how much money we spend. Now, what, what, what we need to do, though, is destigmatize, assure some level of care, try to figure out how to stop people who have a have a weekly counseling meeting for the rest of their lives uh, because there's a, a, a true potential for, for I won't call it abusive use, but overuse. Um, at the same time, we have all sorts of people who don't get any access to care at all. It's a subject that a lot of politicians, major politicians, Tom Harkin comes to mind, former Senator Pete Domenici comes to mind, uh, just as a couple, a couple of people, who have pushed really, really hard to expand access. It is happening. Knowing just how much to spend, how to do it, how to apportion the care, those are all challenges we continue to struggle with. Denny Scrap. Yes, I'm a member of the American Legion, and I've been very impressed with the work that they've been doing to lobby the Veterans Administration for more support for veterans. What they're finding right now with veterans is that, you know, to get the initial consult, to say that, yes, you do have a problem is taking months, and then to have the follow-up is taking months. And the other problem that's happening while it's taking months is you're seeing a rise in suicide. So what the American Legion and the other groups are saying is we need more money being put into preventive medicine, like counseling, to make sure that these people who are troubled don't hurt themselves or hurt somebody else. And that's something we need to be thinking about when we start looking at the cuts that are going to come. We cannot cut what we already don't have. Go ahead, Congressman Al. Go ahead. And sometimes what we think is a solution doesn't work. In in Washington State, uh, under Governor Dan Evans, a governor I have enormous respect for, he grabbed a new concept, and he closed state mental hospitals. And the theory was that these people would go and return to their communities and would be treated there. There was never any money given to treat them there. So what you did is you took them out of the mental institution and put them on the street. Uh, didn't work. I mean, let's also look at the fact, I mean, just the people licensed and qualified. Uh, there's a 2010 Bureau of Labor Statistics report that says there's only about 150-some-odd thousand uh, caregivers that are licensed and authorized to deal with mental health issues out of a country whose population is booming, Alan, doesn't that seem a little bit lopsided? <laughs> I need to know more about the numbers. I'm not just going to draw a conclusion on the basis of 
150,000, would 175,000 be better? I don't know. Our, it, it, I don't know that the, the people who need the care aren't getting it because we don't have enough uh, psychotherapists, psychiatrists, medications, and so on, or whether some of the, some of the hardest cases we don't have coverage, we can't find them, they won't come forward. Denise talked about this very real problem of people who are afraid of, of, of not getting a security clearance, families who are embarrassed, to, to admit problems, uh, it's really but let's go back. To, but let's go back to the numbers. That same, that same Bureau of Labor Statistics, you're talking about 156,000, roughly, give or take, mental health professionals that have to deal with 89 million Americans that suffer, according to federal statistics, that suffer from some sort of mental illness. That that number just does not match up in my book. I, am I wrong on this, Congressman Al? I don't. I don't think you're wrong. Uh, when when you're ready, I'd like to talk a little bit about the causes. Though. <clears throat> Are we? No, no, no. Let's talk about that. the. I mean, I, this I, is all open discussion. I have a belief that as our as our society gets increasingly complex mental health issues are going to get greater and greater and greater. Uh, we we, we take, take a kid, a kid, he goes to school, he's bringing home more and more homework all the time, and by, oh, by the way, he's got to be on the baseball team, and uh, our sister's taking dance lessons, maybe he's taking dance lessons, uh, and several other activities, and where, where's the time for the kid to go out and, and, and be a child? And what does that do to the child's mental outlook on life? And when he gets into the into the adult world, where Americans are kind of proud of the fact we work harder, read longer hours than most other nations in the world, that no doubt benefits us economically. But what does it do to families? What does it do to the to the people who are working that hard and don't have adequate time to take to, to rest. Uh, so I think that, that not only do we need to treat people who have the problem, we also need to look at all the causes, violence on television, that old, old one, and, and all of that contributes to it as well. There's also, Carl Dubin. There's also the uh, bullying. You know, people who, are, who have been bullied uh, sometimes end up with all kinds of neuroses and, and, and need mental health uh, counseling and rape and, and rape, and those all, right. of things. All but I mean, I mean, but I mean, regardless of the cause, I mean, some of this is genetic, some of this, you know, is chemical imbalancing. It's biological, but the but the reality is, we're dealing with a crisis. I mean. Austin, nobody knew who Austin Deeds was, unless you happen to know Cray Deeds, his son and his family. But Austin Deeds, obviously, was a, was a troubled individual who sought care in Virginia at a time when states across the country are totally cutting their budgets. Uh, National Alliance on Mental Health came out with a, uh, with, with a figure that states have cut over the past uh, four years – $1.8 billion from their mental health budgets. State of Vermont, after Hurricane Irene, because they were such an influx, they closed their only mental hospital in Vermont. This shows a trouble. It's almost like 
where we're putting all this money into AIDS research, cancer research, it seems that mental health has that black cloud stigma that doesn't bring it to the forefront of, hey, maybe we do need to invest in this. I think, I think. Let, me, let me suggest that if we're spending $113 billion on mental health care, we're spending a hell of a lot more on mental health care than we are on HIV, AIDS research, cancer research, and a bunch of others. We spend massive amounts of money. I just don't think you can, you can grab a single statistic and, 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 and come up with some kind of an answer. It's way more complicated than that. Al talks about some of the, the reasons that feed into the problem. We've, uh, Denise was talking about the well, and you too about the, the about the, the problem of veterans. We've we've just got a we've got a tidal wave of traumatized uh, veterans coming home that are put that's putting huge pressure on the Veterans Administration, the Veterans Hospitals, and so on. And we you know, we've got to we've got to respond to that surge, particularly for veterans, where there's there's sort of a, 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 a you know a, a double. You know. Well, wow, ladies and gentlemen, we want to take a, this is a serious subject, but we do want to we do want to take a couple of seconds and say hello. Uh, former Republican Majority Leader Tom Delay just walked into the studio real quick. Majority Leader, it is good to see you again, my friend. How are you doing, sir? It is a pleasure. Hi, Justin Russell. Nice to see you again. We're are you going to be here for a few minutes? Yeah. Give us a couple of minutes. We want to finish out the segment. We'd love to bring you in on this oh, next sure. segment, uh, and and we'll we'll finish this out. Give us two minutes, and we're going to go to break real quick. Um, apologize, ladies and gentlemen. That's the great thing about Shelley's here. Kind of going from a serious subject to a little bit more reverie. But we'll have uh, former Majority Leader Tom Blade join us here in a few seconds. That'd be great. Uh, but let's. I want to finish out this topic because we're talking about the influx of what we're having to deal with right now is you've got, along with the statistics that we've just gone over, you, we still have the situation of all of these returning veterans literally in one wave coming back in, and we have no capacity at the VA level, at the DOD level, at the state and local level to deal with this influx of issues. But Justin, it's, it's worse than that. It's not just the veterans that are going to come back, but it's their families. And to be very blunt about this, you know, we have folks who came back who would have died in previous wars. They would have died in Vietnam. They would have died in World War II, but they came back. They've lost limbs and they've seen some unimaginable things. Not only did they see it once, but they probably saw it three, four times. So we've got folks that are dealing with issues we've never seen before, and we've got their spouses and we have their children. And by the way, the VA doesn't have the ability to deal with their spouses and their children, so you're offloading it onto the civilian doctors, who again are already overwhelmed. And by the way, let's add another tagger, you're lucky if they accept TRICARE. So you're completely overwhelming a multitude of systems and you're not providing the support. Call to It's not only the veterans that are coming back from the last two wars, we have, going all the way back to World War II, we have people who, who came back. Uh, my wife's uncle uh, was named, nicknamed Sonny, and when he came back from, uh, from the Battle of the Bulls, it's completely different and, and, and stayed that way for the rest of his life. I mean, there's no, there's no question that this is a serious issue. Uh, Congress, I'm going to start with you. What can we do? I mean, is it something that we need to put it as a priority, like we deal with obesity? Uh, is, it a prior, is it a priority that we deal with as a, as a cost of 
the aftermath of coming out of a war on three fronts. Where's, where does Congress take the stand on this? I think what we need is a plan. And I think that treating the treatment part of it as the totality of the solution is wrong. Now, you, what war-caused ones, you know, you, you, well, you can't say, well, we'll just have, not have war. But there's a whole bunch going on in our society where I think we could have a plan to try and reduce the impact of, of uh, an ever more complex society on individuals so that we'd have a plan to prevent it as well as a plan to, and I'm not taking anything away from the discussion on what we, on we need to treat it, but also we need to prevent it as best we can, and I don't see any plan in place for that. Denise, how many, how many new towns is it going to take? How many Cray Deeds are going to have to be hurt? And, you know, thankfully, Cray Deeds' uh, medical condition has been upgraded to fair after the attack. How, how many uh, Aurora Colorados, Washington Navy Yards are we going to have to go through before we start taking mental illness seriously? Justin, <laughs> let me add another one. Uh, my, my daughter's kindergarten aide uh, had come back from the military. And um, he went over to go see a friend of his who also had come back from Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, that friend killed my daughter's teacher's aide. She was killed. And uh, as somebody has had to explain to a five-year-old, your aide's no longer here. We're not going to go into details, but he's no longer here. And that happened last year. This year, as you all know, I had to deal with the Navy Yard and having to explain to a five- and a nine-year-old what happened there. For me, there shouldn't be another one. For me, it's past time to say we need to be giving more money because we cannot continue the trend of having to explain to young children what happens because they don't understand it. And if I can't explain it to them, why should it be happening? Alan Moore, I know, I know you've been an advocate on several health fronts, particularly HIV, uh, in, in, in a global aspect. Is mental health a global problem as well? Absolutely, it's a global problem. We see it up, we, you know, we see it up close at home, and we talk about it, we worry about it, we, 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 we provide major resources. Is it enough? I don't know. Al, Al talked about a problem that really started back in the 70s when we started closing down mental institutions. We did it for humane reasons because we were locking up a lot of people who shouldn't be locked up, but when we shut them all down, now we have a lot of homeless people in the streets who would be better off in a protected environment. But then you have a civil liberties uh, set of questions. It's not, it, 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 it's not simply a matter of saying, let's get more money. More money to do what? Do we do it on some kind of child, early childhood development? Do we do it in, in training more professionals? Do we expand services? I mean, the, the answer the, to the, me would be yes, though, Alan. Well, but, but, you know, there are limits but to how much we do. That requires a plan. There, it, it, that's right. There, there are many, many things, um, and there are scarce resources. So there, it's always a matter of, uh, of making a decision. But, but in Obamacare, mental health services are one of the required essential medical services. That doesn't mean unlimited services. It means something. And something is, is, is usually better than nothing. 
but but we're we're always operating in a in a constrained budgetary environment. Well, I'm going to let that be the last word. When we come back, we're going to talk about the president. We're going to shift gears and talk about the president's apology from last week and how the Affordable Care Act and Obama are literally up against the ropes. This is Backroom Politics live from Shelley's Backroom in Washington D.C. Also, when we come back, hopefully we'll have former GOP Majority Leader in the House, Congressman Tom DeLay, joining us here on Backroom Politics. We'll be back in four minutes. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland Scotches, they've got Isla Sky Scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
we're back here live here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics from Shelley's Back Room on Blog Talk Radio. We are honored, unexpected surprise to have joining us at the roundtable right now, former GOP Majority Leader in the House of Representatives, Congressman Tom DeLay. Mr. Majority Leader, it is great having you. Thanks well, for joining thank us. You. This is fantastic. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm in my most favorite place in all of Washington, D.C. Shelly's back room. <laughs> and, and to run into you is just fantastic. Wow, this is, this is a great honor. We're glad to have you. Well, and it's funny that you're here because we are now going to be talking about something that's gotten everybody's attention, and that is the Affordable Care Act and specifically the, uh, the apology according to several sources, that Obama gave last week. I'm going to start with you, Mr. Majority Leader. You obviously saw the speech. Yeah. Uh, first of all, you know, we've seen other presidents give mea culpa before. There's mixed reviews coming back on what Obama did. Was it enough? What are your immediate thoughts on what the president addressed last week in his mea culpa speech? Well, I, I don't know which speech you're talking about. The first one was... <laughs> Good point. <laughs> uh, the, the, the first one, I always thought an apology was, I am sorry I did something. And this one was, I am sorry that you don't like what I did. So I, that, first of all, it wasn't an apology. Uh, the mayor culpa did come uh, when he walked out in the press room. Right. And it was, uh, his, his mannerism was so un-Obama-like. I mean, it was obviously that he was... He was very concerned with, with what was going on, with his numbers falling through the toilet, uh, and, and he had to come out and try to convince the American people that not only was he understanding what was going to happen, what was happening, but what was going to try to fix it and try to convince people to do that. All I can tell you, of course, I run in different circles than these guys sitting around the table, but uh, uh, <laughs> and gals, thank you. Uh, but I come from the real world out there, mm -hmm. uh, and well, not uh, all of us, Alan is here. <laughs> <laughs> and and the people that I've been, I, and I've been traveling around the country too, and uh, uh, it's it's just a, a matter of people shaking their heads. They first are getting hit from all different directions. Uh, uh, friends of mine getting those famous letters right. uh, and, and uh, about to make a decision, and most of them are making a decision that they're either going to, to charge their employees or they're going to get rid, rid of their health care and, and put it in the employees. So it's, it's just beginning, and it's going to, it's going to trickle out. Uh, I've hit everybody, including, I'm sure, his base, is very concerned about what's going on. Well, Mr. Majority let's take a step back for a second. I mean, because, you know, one of the subjects that we've talked about around this table several times before, and we've talked about it with other notable Republicans, such as uh, Frank Ferenkopf, uh and, and the like, when we talk about health care, a, a solid health care system for all, the Democrats seem to have taken that as their banner in the top of the mountain, not knowing the fact that going back to Richard Nixon working with Ted Kennedy, it's not that Republicans are against proper health care for Americans. It's just the way this was done was totally botched. Is that accurate? Well, I, not totally. This American, along with a lot of other Americans, understand, number one, it's unconstitutional for the federal government to be involved in health care. Mm -hmm. and especially health care insurance. And so right there, you, you, you're setting up for failure. Secondly, it, it, the federal government, 
when we when we reformed uh, Medicare, we reformed it with market principles and, and competition rather than the federal government taking over the market. And right. You know, you can talk about single payer all the, all that you want, but right now Obamacare is taking over the market. And when you take over the market, this is what you get. Right. Uh, you can't set standards and set prices and expect uh, quality health care. Congressman Al Swift, your thought? I, I, I keep waiting for the Republicans to tell us what their plan is. <clears throat> we we did, did have a, a, an effort by Richard Nixon. How many years ago? Was that would have been that? 72. So that would have been almost 30 years ago. 30 years ago. Uh, Forty years ago. <laughs> That's why I'm not a math major, kid. Republicans are, are are very good at poking holes in uh, in a Democrats' plan, but they haven't presented any of their own. And I think that's that's important. I think when they do, it will probably be easy to poke holes in it too, because this is a very complicated solution or problem. And and given the way. The, the, the fact that this was done by the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and pushed through without Republican input didn't help it at all. But go back one speaker to, to uh, or two speakers to Newt Gingrich, he's the one that basically dismantled the committee system in the Congress, and that's where compromises start in subcommittees, they start working on them, and then in the committees, and usually by the time you get to the floor, uh, you, you've solved a lot of these problems. You've worked out a lot of compromises, and I think the Republicans would have been less unhappy with something that came out of that kind of a process than they are with this one. Mr. Majority Leader? Well, first of all, the premise is wrong. The, re- the premise is not Republican. The Democrats, in fact, the the, the president said it last week. We've been trying a hundred years to do this. Uh, Republicans haven't been trying a hundred years to do this. The, the answer is not in the federal government. The Repub- if you want to do something for 30 million people that don't have health care insurance, then do what we do in, in Houston. People do health savings accounts. Uh, people, uh, people, uh, we have charity hospitals. We have charity clinics to take care of those that did not take their personal responsibility to, to provide for their own health care. Uh, for those that can't provide for themselves, we have health care for them. No one in this nation, no one uh, has been without health care in this nation. So the whole premise that we got to do something in a nation of 350 million people, 30 million, is, is, the, wrong, is the wrong world. Alan Moore. Um, our health system had fundamental problems and we were spending too much and not getting the right results as I've said around this table before there were there were two things that needed to happen five years ago when when President Obama was elected and and wanted to to try to take this on in the, in the middle of this grotesque economic recession, priorities, uh, questionable priorities aside, um, A, if we're going to make do something big, let's make sure it's bipartisan. And there were grounds for bipartisan activity, particularly in the Senate. We've, we've been over that. The, the Democrats got impatient. They also had 60 votes. 
and they also had a big majority in the in the House, and you had a president who didn't have a lot of experience with working with Congress. I, I probably differ a little bit with the leader here about how much the federal government can and should do, whether constitutional or not, but what we probably would agree on is if you're going to jump into this pool, you better jump in holding the hand of somebody and some people from the other party because this is so big and so huge that you better not get out front of, of what, a, what a bipartisan group should do. So that was the first fundamental mistake. And it's not that there was not an opportunity. There was. There were groups working together uh, across the aisle. The second thing is the focus was on how do we bring in these other people? Uh, and, and as the leader says, everybody had some level of access. It wasn't very comfortable. You didn't want to have to go to that emergency room, but if you did, they had to take you in. That's a god-awful way to function, but, but at least it was, it was something. What we were trying to do is figure out how to get them out of the emergency room and move them into some more logical, rational uh, system. And, and economic. It, it, absolutely, because it's horrendously expensive. So the question then was, how do, we, how do we deal with that problem, and how do we shift from paying on the basis of volume of services delivered towards outcomes. Well, let's talk about the economics about this. Congressman, now you brought this up. Mr. Majority Leader, you know, when you look at the economics of it, you know, everybody thinks that, you know, oh, well, there's no government subsidies. They're going to be paying into it. Everything will be happy and glory. Yet when you talk to the, the, the true large healthcare systems in D.C., the big ones, MedStar, obviously, university health systems and your neck of the woods, when you look at that, the reality is that if they do take in somebody, I mean, it's not that they're just gonna, that the money's going to magically appear. When somebody comes in without health insurance, they get four hundred thousand dollars worth of treatment. They either try and get that from the uninsured patient, which largely ends up not working, but they turn around and either write it off as a tax credit or they go back to CMS for reimbursement. So the taxpayers are paying for it anyway. Is why is that argument not being supported by the Republican Party as a whole? In the case of Houston, they had a local taxing authority that paid for the charity hospital that everybody in the whole region went to. Uh, and secondly, other hospitals that took people in cross-subsidized it to those that had insurance. So we were paying for it, yes, but we were paying for it on a local level rather than a federal standard, a federal economic system that is doomed to fail. It will fail. There is Unless you want to just blow a hole uh, we're at $17 trillion now. If you want to double that in the next 10 years, just let Obamacare go into effect. Denise Krupp, you had a thought. My concern right now is I don't know if we've been charged of Obamacare. Uh, and I, I, I want to focus on leadership because, you know, the Bush administration had a problem with Hurricane Katrina. You had Michael Brown who imploded. But you had the president who came back and said, you know what, you're gone. I'm putting Bad Allen in charge. And I like that. I mean, and I say that, you know, wearing a blue uniform just like he did, he had the gravitas and he had the leadership to come in and say, you know what, you screwed up, I'm going to bring the assets in, I can tell you what you need to do. And you could put him on camera and say, this is what we've got. On the other side, what we have right now in 2013 is you have all of these hearings, including the most recent ones that happened before Energy and Commerce today, where people were saying, I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know. And that is what's going to kill my party. My party is going to be killed by a thousand cuts because you're going to have so many hearings and you're going to keep hearing the repeated message of, I didn't know. Well, if you didn't know, then why not? 
heads need to roll, and you need some people in there who know how to manage. Mr. Majority Leader, I mean, this brings up a great topic, is the lack of leadership, particularly on this subject alone. It seems that nobody knew what was going on. It almost seems that CMS and and, uh, Secretary Sebelius' organization, Health and Human Services, were working in almost a leadership vacuum. Where does the responsibility come from? Does it come from the top, or is Secretary Sebelius, should her job be on the line? Of course it comes from the top, and that's the problem. Is the president losing credibility right now, do you think? He has no credibility right now. None, even with his base. I mean... You talk, the post came out, I think it was today, with the lowest number supposedly was 42%. It's really in the 30s. And this is he, after he gave the mea culpa speeches and yeah, the I'm sorry speeches. Exactly. He is, he is and, and you can tell that he has no credibility because the Democrats are running uh, from this ship and, and diving overboard like crazy. Uh, and that's what happens when, when the leader himself loses all credibility. Congressman Al. I... I've been around long enough to know that uh, when you're dealing with a crisis, it seems like it will never go away and the bottom is falling out and it's all going to disappear. There's always tomorrow when something else happens. I think that, one, the president is likely to get this under control, and two, other things are going to come along and divert the attention of the public so that I don't think it's going to have as big a negative effect as uh, as Tom suggests, Carl, what? Carl, Carl Tuman. First of all, it's laudable what Houston does and has done. Most communities can't afford to do that, and you have one of the reasons why we wanted to reform the healthcare system is because of all the people that were going into emergency rooms and couldn't pay, and was driving costs sky high. So you come into this system. It's a very complex law. Uh, you know, years ago, when Medicare Part D came out, the drugs took three months before they finally got the system running correctly. And I agree with that. If, if they can fix this system and get it running correctly, there's going to be other glitches. You're not going to fix it. You're not going to fix it. And, and it's not going to go away, Al, and with all due respect. It's because what's on the horizon is the employer mandate. That's going to hit this time next year. Uh, and, and getting set up for that is going to happen all of next year. So it's not going to go away. Regardless of party, you need my demographic. You need women like me who've got children. You need Republicans and Democrats to need me. And my concern, and like everybody else's, is I have to have insurance for my children. I am a hopscotch away from going to the emergency room because my kid decided to do something stupid. You know, and, and that's, I'm like every other mother, and we cannot afford not to have insurance. And if you can't give me sound insurance in a timely manner, that's a demographic you're going to lose. But you can't can have Majority leader. You can have a health savings account right now. You can put your own money in and buy a catastrophic policy. And you can keep, that's your money that you pay for your health care. And that can be transferred to your kids when you pass away. And that, that account can grow and grow and grow. Right now, the system is, if you go on this exchange, 
You're, you're, they're creating a health savings account because your deductible is five thousand, six thousand dollars before you even hit the insurance. Well, my it is set up to fail. What is the exchange? Because it's, again, and, and I say this not only being a mom, but I've got a father who's a family practice doctor who is spending sixty to eighty hours in his office a week now trying to figure out what the system looks like. And you're telling people one day after another what is this, you know it's changing. You cannot roll this out, and that's what's going to hurt our party. If, Regardless of whatever happens over the next, you know, 12 months, if you can't tell the doctors how they're going to roll this out and the doctors don't know, how do you expect the patients to know? Um, more real quick. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting to think about about this president. and His, his approval was 68% not long after he was elected. He's lost 40% of that. Um, 40% of what he had, he is, no longer approves of him. The 42% that do approve are people who are just going to be loyal to him, I think. And, and there are probably some number of people, very small, who say, yeah, yeah, we really like everything he's doing. The problem, let's think about the political problem for a moment with Obamacare. This president has been riding on competence and integrity. And transparency. Well, he's never read <laughs> and, and claims transparency, but, but, but people thought he was smart and competent. And and after a series of saying, I just learned about it, I just learned about it, in this particular case, it's clear that just the, the, the door that you have to open to get into the room where you can learn about Obamacare is, is messed up. You can't get in the door yet. That's the right, right. side. And then inside, we begin to see all these things that, that they hope will work and probably won't. You add to this problem of competency and who's in charge and can you really run stuff, Answer, no, not on this one. Um, how, about tr how about honesty, at least? You can't and, have... And the honesty... honesty you, let me just stick in Majority here. later. You can't have honesty when you go to the website and the first thing you see is welcome to the marketplace, which is a lie. Right. It's not a marketplace. Well, the honesty issue that I think is, is a bigger problem for him is the so-called promise that if you like your plan and like your doctors, you can keep them. And that's wrong, demonstrably wrong. People knew it was wrong. How much the president knew is hard to know. This is, it's, it's tempting for politicians. We've got two who served at a very high level here to, to sort of eh, shave the truth just a little bit, but it will catch you and it is hurting him. And I don't know how you recover when somebody says, we can't even trust his word anymore. Well, we've got three minutes left in this segment. Real quickly, while I've got you here, Mr. Majority Leader, this brings, segues us into a good topic. Want to look at 2014 midterms. Are you optimistic? Do you think the GOP can overcome the hurdles from the last few years and retake the House and possibly take control of the Senate? Well, i got to tell you that uh, the midterms have already been set. It's been set over the last two or three. How may not agree with me, but it's set. People's minds are being set right now because of what's happening out there. It's set. Was the, Cuccine was the Cuccinelli uh, McCullough phrase, was that almost a signal to the rest of the country, Obamacare is hurting the Democratic Party? Yeah, the Democrats recognized that more than we did. Uh, the, the, another week, and you'd have had catch, uh, Cuccinelli, governor of, of uh, Virginia. Alan Moore, real quick. Yeah, these guys remember a, a group that's pretty much disappeared from the face of the earth, a group called the the yellow dog Democrats. <laughs> because, uh, they, they, 
they were nominal Democrats who would vote with Republicans. We got a new group of Democrats that just emerged in the last couple of weeks. They're called the running dog Democrats. Hey. <laughs> From Obamacare. No, I think we're asking practical questions. And quite frankly, I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. You need to be answering these questions. Yes. It, it shouldn't be a political. Um, insurance should not be political. Well, the rollout was political. I mean, they knew. President Obama knew that they couldn't, they weren't ready for the rollout. But they had to roll it out on October the 1st because of the shutdown and everything that's going on. That they had to roll it out, and it was a political decision. And that politics is coming back to haunt I know, but with all due respect, sir, we've got to be holding hands and making sure that we clean this mess up because we've got too no, many children can. at risk. And I'm not, I don't want to play politics. I, I understand, but there are other ways to approach this. And, and the worst thing the Republicans could do right now is to be pulled into that box of fixing this. You can't fix something that is fundamentally wrong. Wow. Well, the, 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 the interesting thing is, is that you know, some people say the Republicans wouldn't wouldn't come in and help when this thing was being organized or, or put down, and then and then. Well, that's just not there, true. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You have this breakdown in the system, and instead of coming in and saying, "Let's get together and make some suggestions," you don't remember how to fix you it. You don't remember that famous meeting over at the White House where Obama brought in the Republicans. And they laid it all out for them and laid out their, their proposals for this. And you know what the president said? I'm the president. I was elected president. And screw you. Oh, good. Well, I, I got to tell you, with that, I'm going to let that be the last word for this segment. Former Majority Leader, GOP Majority Leader in the House of Representatives, Congressman Tom DeLay. Mr. Majority Leader, it is an honor to have you come in here unannounced. Well, that you. was fantastic. We appreciate it. You owe me a cigar. I owe you, I do. I owe you a little bit more than a cigar, too, Mr. Majority Leader. And by the way, Elliot Burke's paying for that one, not me. Hey, uh, I know he's got a bigger cigar than any of us have. Al, <laughs> size doesn't matter. Exactly. <laughs> Family show, dude. Family show. Come on. Uh, okay, I'm losing control quickly. Uh, when we come when we come back, we're going to take a look back at 50 years of the JFK assassination. We're going to talk about that and, and some of the new revelations and some of the ideas that go out. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Majority Leader. Oh, okay. We will be back in about four minutes. Stay with us. You got Jerome Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to 
the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town We're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit right now. We're going to talk uh, about uh, the JFK assassination that happened uh, 50 years ago this week in a, in a tragic event in Dallas, Texas. Uh, joining us right now is uh, Dr. Jerome Corsi. He is the author of Who Really Killed Kennedy 50 Years Later?, Dr. Corsi, thank you for joining us. Well, it's a great pleasure. Was, we're here with Tom DeLay, and it's and we, just great to stop in the show. Thank you. Well, so, um, Dr. Corsi, we, we've, we've all seen the, the uh, Zagruder films. We've all seen and heard Cronkite's uh, emotional announcement and all the radio broadcasts uh, subsequent to Lee Harvey Oswald's uh, alleged shooting of uh, President Kennedy. We every year or every ten years we come back and we that we know everything about what's being said, but your book dives deep into who really killed Kennedy. Just at a at a high level, what are some of the new revelations that are coming out right now? Well, first of all, now there's like five million pages in the National Archives. I mean, I've been studying this for fifty years, and we my dad was a lobbyist here in Washington when I was a kid, and going back to the McCollum Committee hearing. I'd seen the Kennedys. I mean, of course, I was a kid, but it was around them. And uh, when the assassination happened, it was kind of like, you know, for me, it was 9-11 when the second plane hit the buildings to do with terrorism. Well, when Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald, you knew it was a a plot. It was mob involvement. It was hard to believe that Jack Ruby was motivated simply by sympathy for the Kennedys. And what's come out is... um, 
it really a, a plot that I believe traces back to the CIA, ultimately Alan Dulles, who uh, was fired by Jack Kennedy in the Bay of Pigs. And Kennedy would not fight the lying CIA wars. He refused to do it. He wasn't going to do it in Vietnam. He felt the CIA was lying to him and the country, that we couldn't win these wars, that they were anti-colonial. Kennedy very much believed in the emergence of nationalism in the third world. At any rate, I'll give you a couple of things that are really startling that people just don't know. Um, the Warren Commission, now the documents are around of the internal Warren Commission deliberations. And, of course, I believe that Lee Harvey Oswald and all the study I've done was, was a patsy. Uh, Lee Rankin, the chief counsel for the Warren Commission, wrote a memo in January 64 to the commission and said the commission had evidence that Lee Harvey Oswald was a FBI agent. He had a number. He was being paid $200 a month for informing and giving the FBI information. He had a CIA number and a CIA file. He was being maintained, the file by James Angleton, who was tracking military who were loyal to the United States, who defected to the Soviet Union as double agents. And that was the program Lee Harvey Oswald was in. Now, and Dr. Corsi, when we, when we talk about that aspect, you know, a large part of Americans understand that, uh, that doing internal investigations and internal security inside the borders of the United States goes against the authorizing charter of the Central Intelligence Agency right. and the Director of Central Intelligence. It, it, it seems that, according to your book and your research, if I'm hearing this correctly, that that the director of central intelligence at the time pretty much blew through that ideal saying that this was in his eyes a matter of clear and present danger. Well, it was a coup d'etat. Let's get right down to it. It was a coup d'etat with the CIA organizing it. Rogue elements in the CIA. I'm sure it wasn't authorized, but Alan Dulles, who then shows up in the Warren Commission and makes sure that no evidence gets introduced that is contrary or detrimental to the CIA or the FBI, but I think Lee Harvey Oswald, you know, was framed. Uh, people uh, have always, you know, now we've got O'Reilly's book out saying it was the, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was the assassin. Right after Kennedy was assassinated, uh, the CIA, Cord Myers, wrote a memo to the major news agencies. And he basically said we had a program, Operation Mockingbird, and the CIA was paying journalists in the 50s and continuing in the 60s to promote the CIA propaganda. And Cord Myers in this memo said that they were going to, CIA was going to go against, try and psychops to discredit anybody who dared to criticize the Warren Commission. And the Warren Commission suppressed tons of evidence, which now is available in the National Archives. It's just that the American people really aren't aware of the Church Committee and the Senate Select Committee all the investigations been done of the CIA assassinations around the world and the CIA working with Ma. Was, was, was the Cuba aspect of this a red herring? Was it a, an attempt by the intelligence community to throw the scent off of the direct ties to the CIA and, according to your book, the mob? Well, the CIA, I mean, the Cuban thing was central to this because Kennedy realized that the CIA was lying to him, trying to get him to, you know, this was not a, uh, an army of uh, freedom fighters. This was a CIA-trained mercenary group hitting in the Bay of Pigs. 
and Dulles thought that Kennedy would be embarrassed and would launch a naval airstrike from a carrier offshore, Kennedy realized he'd been duped and he would not go to war over a lying CIA mercenary army, and he said no. And he fired Dulles, he fired, Alan, he fired Bissell, he fired the brother of the mayor of Dallas who was involved in this CIA plot. The CIA had developed in Guatemala, and again, people don't realize in the 50s, a model of killing a head of state with a patsy. And that was developed around the, this, uh, for a fruit company, United Fruit Company in Guatemala. And the patsy in that case killed the head of state in Guatemala. They said he was a, 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 one of the palace guards who then killed himself. No one saw him kill the president. He was blamed. The CIA had their patsy model. When, when we go back and we look through the years at the different uh, almost venues that the JFK assassination had taken, one of the most notable value, uh, venues was Oliver Stone's yeah. uh, movie JFK. Oliver Stone made the allegation that what he termed as the industrial military complex, that would have been yeah. the old McDonnell Douglas, the old Northrop's, the old Grumman's, the old General Dynamics. Did they, in fact, have a piece in this? Absolutely. See, Kennedy would, would not fight in Vietnam. He said, in fact, the speech he had in his pocket and the trademark, which he never delivered in Dallas, was saying we would give Vietnam military aid. But Kennedy believed that the regime, you know, Diem had just been assassinated. He thought the regime in, in Vietnam was corrupt. He didn't think that we could go in and win their war for them. He was going to pull out. Uh, Kennedy, I say, was the first victim of this new world order. He would not fight these kind of lying CIA wars that Dulles and the crowd around Dulles wanted to fight. You've got to remember that Dulles and his brother, John Foster Dulles, again, most Americans don't know this, prior to World War II were working with Brown Brothers Harriman. They were financing the Nazis. Really? We financed Hitler. And we did it through Wall Street. Uh, well, Alan Moore, you have a question. Yeah, or it's sort of a, sort of a comment. You know, I've, we're, I'm at a serious disadvantage. I haven't read this book. I haven't spent 50 years studying this. I've spent some time studying it. I have some vivid memories of it. I'm hoping we can turn to some of the memories. We are. Think about what it means 50 years later. Where, you know, I I have a lot of questions about what's what's been said. There are a lot of people who've spent a lot of time um, uh, looking at this, questioning, challenging. Um, I, I think I feel the duty to, to say that, it, so far as I'm aware, there's no emerging consensus that has changed uh, the, the, the basic conclusions of the, of, of the Warren Report. And the Warren, the Warren Commission did have a group of very distinguished people, and so it, it, but I, but I'm not in a position to, to argue because I haven't done the research. But I but I have vivid memories of the day he was shot and what that meant and to me, the people around us, and a lot and of we're, we are, we're going to talk. We, no, no, we're going to talk about that. But as part of that discussion, I, I mean, you know, we've got uh, Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing Kennedy, out. Uh, we have a um, we have a CNN expose. Uh, the assassination of Kennedy out. Uh, we have Dr. Corsi's book out. Uh, this it seems that at 50 years, there's a lot more 
information that is now available right. for the general public to and draw their own people, conclusions. Most people, for instance, have not spent the time at the archives really seeing how much information that the Warren Commission suppressed. The Warren Commission would not interview witnesses, for instance, at the assassination who believed the shots were from the grassy knoll. Uh, the, the Warren Commission um, was going to conclude that there were three shots, one that hit Kennedy at second, that hit Connolly in the third, uh, that hit Kennedy in the head. That was even in April 64. They were ignoring James Pegg, who was also hit. He was a bystander, and he was nicked by a missed bullet. That's when the single bullet theory was concocted, because the Warren Commission had this predetermined conclusion they were going to frame Lee Harvey Oswald. Nicholas Katzenbach, attorney general, even wrote a memo right after Johnson took office saying, we've got to make sure this commission blames Oswald. What, what, what was the spark that made you dive deep into this? Well, see, when they, and I remember uh, distinctly when Kennedy was shot, of course, I was you know, pretty involved in it, having known many of the people. At Parkland Hospital, when the doctors all examined Kennedy, they all said that this, the wounds were front entrance wounds. Now, Dr. Perry, who was under a lot of pressure from the Warren Commission, recanted and ultimately said that he changed his mind, but all the doctors came out of that room, out of the emergency room, and within the first hour, they were giving press statements saying that the wounds were front entry wounds. When, when we go back and we look at this as we, as we go into that day itself and, right. the, and the lasting effects, we, when we look at the lasting effects, Dr. Corsi, there's obviously a very... I mean, this paints a very dark message of a very dark time in our government and in our history. Right. Um, are there lessons that we can learn well, as far as not I, having this happen again? Yeah. Nobody wants this to happen I, again. I wrote the book because I wanted people to really understand just how much evidence there is in the public record now. Most Americans are not aware of that really deeply contradicts what the Warren Commission concluded. When Jack Kennedy was not going to fight in Vietnam, he was going to break up the CIA, it was the process of breaking up the Federal Reserve. We're printing our own money. Kennedy did not like this whole military-industrial complex that Eisenhower warned about, and he was going to break up fighting these lying CIA wars. I mean, the CIA is still doing it today. And Carl Tubin, yeah. you remember vividly your interactions with President Kennedy. I had a lot of interactions with President Kennedy, the primary. I was executive director of the Democratic Party, and when my boss couldn't go someplace where Kennedy was going to be, he sent me and said, you take him around and introduce him to everybody. I have a question, though. Um, I've, I've read more and more about the fact that the FBI had interviewed um, um, Oswald. Right. Oswald and um, Ruby had had dinner or something a night or two before the assassination. And, and because it, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be logical that somebody in the FBI would have told Hoover well, see, what was the, going on? You, and did you, Hoover have... Do you think Hoover had any part of this? Well, yes, I think Hoover was in on the cover-up. I mean, the FBI in <laughs> Dallas destroyed part of the Lee Harvey Oswald file. Okay. They destroyed the record. They didn't want the public knowing about it. We've never been able to see what those documents right. included. Right. But there is now excellent evidence. I mean, if Oswald had a CIA file and an FBI number 
and was informing with the FBI. He was acting as a double agent. This information came to the Warren Commission. They held a meeting on January 27, 1964, and Alan Dulles said, this information is just too detrimental to the agencies, and the Warren Commission suppressed the information for the American people. It's now available in, in, in the public record. You can look up the document. Does, when we look at the legacy of JFK, I mean, you know, we look at the legacy of Camelot, uh, we, we talk a lot about the prospects for Kennedy as a president. Uh, very articulate, young family. Camelot was alive and well back then. However, when you look at it politically, uh, many political experts today look back in that in that time in Dallas, uh, President Kennedy was, in fact, politically on the ropes to a certain extent. Uh, he was maybe single digit ahead of Richard Nixon in a... Well, in against a, Goldwater. Or, against Barry Goldwater, rather. He was really... I think the, the feeling was he was going to beat Goldwater. I mean, the, the Democrats had figured out how to beat Goldwater, whether whoever ran against him. Uh, Goldwater was, at that point, just too radically conservative for the country. Uh, but Kennedy, um, you know, and I, what I knew of Kennedy, he had a fundamentally different vision for America. It was a vision that was back to the individual freedoms that we enjoy, and he believed those freedoms should be enjoyed around the world. He wasn't going to fight these wars. I mean, he, he wouldn't go into Cuba when he was being forced by the military and, and the CIA. He wasn't going to go into Laos. See, people, again, don't recognize on the public record the CIA was already running drugs out of Laos in 1961. Congressman Al. Well, it occurs to me that not having read the book, uh, it still seems to me that if you go through all of this material, it's essential that you make judgments about it. Uh, and your judgment might be different than my judgment looking at the same document. So. It brings up a, an old, uh, uh, old theory of mine, uh, articulated by Herbert C. Taylor, <coughs> a, a sociologist at Western Washington University. Do not ascribe to conspiracy that for which stupidity will suffice for an answer. It seems to me that from all of the things you've said, there's a awful lot of opportunity for people to have done, I'm not calling you stupid, I'm talking about many of the things that you're talking about could have been done by mistake, not by error, by carelessness, by a whole bunch of other things, not necessarily conspiracy. And what you described is an incredibly complicated conspiracy. Well, it's, not Dr. That, it's not all that complicated. I mean, what you had was suppressing to get the evidence. CIA in to get Herbert Hoover in. Well, they were in. They were. Herbert they were. Hoover. No, you're talking about J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> Edgar Hoover. Yeah, the, the one with the ugly building here. Yeah. They yeah. were. They were in it to begin with. I mean, the let's take one of the issues in the this uh, single bullet theory, the bullet 399, which was found on a stretcher. It was found by a guy named Tomlinson in Parkland Hospital. The documents are all in the archives of book. Josiah Thompson documented this as well. Uh, the stretchers the bullet was found on were not stretchers that either Connolly or Kennedy had been on. And the bullet that Tomlinson found was a pointed bullet. It was not the round tip bullet that was found. If you tried to introduce bullet 399 into a court of law, and remember Oswald was never tried, there was no chain of evidence on that that would have permitted its introduction into a court of law. 
But let, let me go back and say that this, this was a very complicated conspiracy uh, involving lots and lots of people and yeah. many what you agencies. Yeah. And what, what you don't understand is that the CIA had been working with the mob and very complicated conspiracies back to Guatemala in 1954. What I understand is anything that large with that many people involved rarely work. But it doesn't work. The evidence is out there in the, in the archives showing and point after point after point the distortions of the, uh, of the Warren Commission. Let me come back to and the And let me make one more point. The CIA and the mob were working on assassinations around the world. Dulles had an assassination coup d'etat program in place. It, the Church Committee documented this. The House uh, uh, Select Committee on Assassinations documented it. We were intricately involved, Johnny Rosselli going back into actually the Eisenhower administration being recruited to organize CIA assassination attempts with the mob against Castro. Those were, in effect, with Bobby Kennedy organizing them when he was just before Jack Kennedy was killed. Denise, you have, you have spent 50 years of your life looking into this, and you, you read tons and tons of documents and what have you. And, and some I, of the documents are startling. And I don't, for a moment, suggest that you are making anything up. I am suggesting that it does require interpretation. I agree. And there's a, but see, the a interpretation of has error. been the interpretation has been done. Most Americans don't realize that, for instance, the Church Committee documented conspiracy after conspiracy with the CIA involved with the mob in foreign assassinations. Again, going back to Guatemala, they're all on the record. It, it, we don't appreciate any longer the fact that you know you had. Um, a major effort in the CIA engaging in rogue activities. John Kennedy was aware of it. He said he was going to break up the CIA into a thousand pieces. How do you know that? John, it's on the public record that John Kennedy said he was going to break up the CIA into a thousand pieces. He fired Alan Dulles, he fired Richard Bissell, and he fired Cavill in the CIA, who was the brother of the mayor the of Dallas. Where on the public? Did he give a speech? Yes, Jack Kennedy told it to many, many people. It's about it, it's common knowledge. Jack Kennedy said he was going to break up the CIA into a thousand pieces. Well, not common to me. Well, <laughs> and you haven't read the books. Well, I haven't read your book. Well, and I, have, and I haven't read mine. all the other stuff. But it, it's, without, it is fully documented. I mean, with, you, without reading it, I still right. get back to the fact that all of that information has to be interpreted. There's room for error it, there. It has been interpreted. Yeah. Even the House you. Committee, no, the House Assassinations Committee came to the conclusion that there was a conspiracy. You won't realize there was a federal government investigation that concluded a 95% probability that Oswald did not act alone. Well, we're, we're up against the break right now. Uh, I, do want, I do want to promote real quick uh, Dr. Corsi's book, Who Really Killed Kennedy 50 Years Later. You can get this on Amazon, I believe. Amazon, yes. I'm here to talk about it at the National Press Club today, this evening. There's oh, fantastic. A panel on it this oh, okay, very good. Uh, Dr. Corsi's fantastic book, Great research. Uh, obviously, it, it, it does bring up of a course. lot of questions by a lot of Americans, and it, and this is something that we're going to debate for the next years, years. The next fifty years. I I agree. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that day and some of our memories of that. I know Carl, you spent a lot of time on the Kennedy campaign in '60. Uh, Congressman Al, you were a broadcaster back in in that day. I was running uh, a camera. 
We're still a broadcaster. <laughs> Emmy, only Emmy Award winning, the only Emmy Award winning broadcaster around the table. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about JFK 50 years later. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Dr. Corsi, again, thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thank, Thank you. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelley's Backroom, Shelley's Backroom has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, Seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, You have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, Thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics. day here on Backroom Politics. This is Backroom Politics Live on Shelley's Backroom. Again, thanks to Dr. Corsi, the author of Who Really Killed Kennedy 50 Years Later. Uh, we've got breaking news coming out of Washington, D.C. right now. Uh, good Lord, when it rains, it pours. Uh, we've got uh, breaking news coming from CNN. CNN is now reporting that uh, Congressman Trey Corsi, who represents the 19th Congressional District in Florida, has been arrested 
for possession of cocaine. Uh, this is not good. This is not good, obviously, good news for the Republicans in the House. Uh, just at a time when the Democrats are on the rope, Congressman Al, here comes this. I told you things would happen. <laughs> <laughs> Little did we know that you may have had some good intel on this one. Uh, we're, getting the, we're getting the story right now, but uh, according to USA Today, USA Today is reporting, uh, and I quote, uh, Representative Trey Radel, Republican of Florida, was arrested for possession of cocaine, according to court documents. They continue... Radel, a freshman first elected last year, will be arraigned in District of Columbia Superior Court. He was apparently arrested on October 29th for unlawfully, unlawfully, knowingly, and intentionally possessing a quantity of cocaine, according to a, doc, a charging document from the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, it is a misdemeanor charge, but it is a big charge. Uh, Alan Moore, uh, when you hear stuff like this, this just goes back to you know, these people are human. They, can, as much as they like to portray themselves above and beyond, this is a very human situation. You know, it's it's not just in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, join, by the way, uh, joining joining us right now is uh, is um, Dr. Ames Cartwright. He is. Uh, former gubernatorial candidate on the Republican Party for the great state of Oregon. He is also uh, a large supporter and heads up a large contingent of Tea Party activity in the state of Oregon. Uh, Dr. Cartwright, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you joining us here. Uh, Dr. Dr. Cartwright, when you, when you hear uh, you know, the news now coming out of uh, CNN and USA Today that another congressman has been arrested uh, for possession of cocaine or for what other reasons, does this get you going and your supporters going as far as, well, maybe we need to look at changing who goes to Congress and who represents us? Well, yes, it does. But also, it disturbs me greatly that we have lost a lot of our moral moral things in our country. I used to be a school teacher. I served in the Navy. I, uh, uh, in, and I remember when Kennedy was assassinated. He was right. On the but uh, what we have in Oregon going on is... Uh, is you know uh, we seem to lose the election every time and and uh, uh, it, it, uh, what goes with that is that we're seeing marijuana now approved uh, as a drug and now in, in Washington I'm sure that we're next on the list and uh, and the question is how does this happen but you know we don't teach our kids moral things in schools like we used to right uh, my ancestor wrote the First Amendment Constitution Fisher Ames and uh, and he said how important is the only book that we actually had in, in schools at one time was the Bible. He said the Bible was the best book of its time, the best English book, the best history book. It makes us all the same. And it should be taught in schools. It was very dis... So we're losing this discipline that we used to have the moral aspects taught in our schools. And so how does that have to do with drugs? Well, it has slowly, it seems to me, the socialist left. I used to call them progressives. There's a Tea Party guy, and now call them communists and socialism. And uh, whether it's Obamacare, I don't think there is Obama... a difference between socialism and communism. Uh, well, there's not much difference. There's, there's not, not much. Difference. There's not so, well, this is a debate show, so you know, Congressman Al, yeah. you obviously take exception to that. 
well, I mean, it's socialism, fascism, socialism, and communism, and all of far I'm sorry, I'm a Coast Guard officer, and I fought in the military to make sure that I protected the United States, and I'm not going to be told as a Democrat that I'm a communist. There's no way in God's green earth I'm going to be told I'm a communist. Wow. So I ask people these questions. Uh, two questions, and now Tom Delay was talking about it's not the federal government, for instance, on the health care program, uh, to even be in that business. And the reason is the federal government was designed to be two things. One, to do national defense and to interstate commerce. It, where is Obamacare in the United States Constitution? We so, won the election. So all of you won the election, but what I'm saying to you is that why, why is it is that we have... Why is socialism coming? This is where, where people, where the government tells us what to do. Um, well, let me ask you, Dr. Cartwright, let me ask you this question. Would, you know, we, we, the, the Tea Party as a whole has been looked at as being a, um, a, a catalyst for the government shutdown. You obviously support the government shutdown and the efforts of senators like Mike Lee and Ted Cruz. Yes. Um, when we look at that, is the Tea Party... is are the comments about the Tea Party, are they accurate that there was no plan B or get out or some sort of contingency plan in place that they went in there a little bit blind, or was this thought out? I think, we're, I think that uh, it's going to crash anyway right now, the way we're going, $17 billion. Okay, We're going to crash. Uh, I run a company, and, 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 and what, what, what happens in a company is that when you don't keep the company in the black, it fails at bankruptcy, and pieces of the company are picked up and sold off other places. The government, when it crashes, it's going to really crash. Uh, in reference, uh, I think that, uh, that the, the Tea Party's perspective is that government, the states are supposed to assume the responsibilities. If there's going to be health care, uh, it's the state, it's the state uh, thing, and the, and the people... The people of the, of the state control who gets elected or to have what laws we have. Social issues, as I would say with Joseph Farrer, who's a World Net Daily, would say, are not the important issue here. The important issue here is whether government is supposed to be telling us what to do, and the left often uses social issues in order to defeat us. Does that make myself clear? It does. It does. Denise Krupp? As somebody who is a Democrat, I think I'd like to make it very clear that we are not socialists, we are not all communists, and then I say that because I wore the military uniform, and I wore it proudly for four years, so I resent anybody telling me that because of the fact that I'm a Democrat, I'm automatically a socialist or a communist. Now, that being said, I also recognize that if the government is going to do something, then we ought to be doing it together, both Democrats and Republicans, and we shouldn't be calling each other names socialists and communists. That's well, that's 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 Hold on, Dr. Conrad. Let me ask her a question. Sure. Questions, okay. And which I determine whether you are a socialist, communist. You are not going to determine, sir, okay. if I'm a socialist no, no, here's or the communist. Question. Here's no. the I'm not answering them. In the foundations of our country, okay, which was a Christian nation. Sir, I am a Catholic, and I swore to uphold the Constitution of the United States. So help me God, and I'm not going to be told I'm okay, a communist. Good question. I ask of anybody who may consider themselves to be a socialist or communist, or a or just liberal. Do uh, you believe in God? I'm sorry, I think that's what you're saying. Let me finish my question. Liberal. Do you believe in God? Sir, I don't think that's any of your business. I go to church, but that is none of your business. Well, I think you do. But anyway, well, so oh, the oh, next oh, issue is oh, the on, Constitution. 
Okay. Sir, I swore to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God, I did it several times. I think I uphold. Well, I think I did let it. Me, let me bring this back. Let me bring this back for a second, Dr. Carter. Let me, let me bring this back for a second because one one of the things that we that we we talk about on the show quite quite often is that we we talk about uh, the political civility in in political discourse in in this country. We've seen that both sides of of the fray, both the fringe left and the far right, uh, look at demagoguery as opposed to civil discourse. Would you agree with that, that that there is more or less civil discourse in the way that we talk about politics today? I'm not sure I understand your question. Right. So, uh, in my picture or viewpoint as a Tea Party, Okay. We have Please. the right where you have no government at all, mm-hmm. okay. and anarchy. And then you have basically the the, the, uh, the fringe left, yeah, the far left, which right. is socialism, communism, and fascism, which right. we've learned as by anybody that fights their soldiers knows what World War, World War II was like. It was we lost seventy million people. But would you would you? Uh, so we don't want you, to go back to the socialism, fascism, or communism and go repeat that. Mistake. Okay, but Dr. Cartwright, you know we. We, we've seen Tea Party supporters get some traction in, in, in everything that we're seeing right now in Washington. We've seen people like Ted Cruz. Uh, we've seen people like Mike Lee. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen several Tea Party uh, members, including those with support from Tea Party, a la Michelle Bachman, although she's leaving, and several other new freshmen that are coming in, a la Mark Wayne Mullen out of Oklahoma, too. Right. When, when, we, when we see that, though, one of the things is that the Tea Party is saying is that they use, again, demagoguery as part of their political tactic in the foray of operating in Congress. You're saying that that's not accurate, that they're operating on fact versus demagoguery? The, the fact is that, that we, uh, as a Tea Party group, believe in returning, sort of like rebooting the computer, going back to the fourth like the 14th Amendment, right? before we got into big trouble, sometimes it's time to shut it down and go back and start over. And many of, we recognize that you can't shut the government immediately down, but we need to take some chunks and sections out of it. Obamacare is all about one thing. It's not about medical program. I don't think it ever intended to be about a medical program. I think it intended to be to implement socialism or communism into their government. We are under attack from many facets. The Russians would love us to be communists. The Chinese would love us to be communists. And we're being attacked. And, 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 and there's even a, there is a, even a Sharia law communism, which is kind of a, that's been going on. So we're under attack from three different factions outside the United States that are now occupying inside our, even our administrations today. Do you understand this occupy, uh, occupying thought? Doctor, sure you know, I, 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 I talked a little bit about Dr. Corsi having conspiracy theories. You have outdone him by a thousand percent. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> conspiracy theories that are on their face absurd. Absurd. You know, uh, you have every right to believe that. You have every right to advocate it. You have every right to be a Tea Party person and do it. And I have every right to say you're completely full of you see Family Show. Family Show. I, I said it. You did. You did. Alan, Alan Moore. I was kind of hoping that we could spend a little time reflecting on what we were doing when uh, when JFK was killed and what that means to the country and, and what he stood for and, 
and uh, uh, and I mean we we we've heard some views of the Tea Party. We could spend a bunch of time here. I'm Mr. A, Chairman, I'm a, I move that we go to that uh, topic immediately. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a proud, I'm a proud. I'm a leader proud. of uh, Oregon Tea Party groups. Forty-two right. groups in that right. one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You can't ignore forty-two groups or several <laughs> thousand. <laughs> well, so we can if we want to. I have hold, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Carl. Hold on. Alan Moore Ford first, then we'll go back. I'm a proud Republican. I respect the passion and the views and the rights of the tea of of Tea Party folks. I disagree with some of what I hear, but I don't see them as a monolithic group. Um, and and uh, I think that some of the rhetoric about what, what, what Democrats or people on the left uh, are, are motivated by is, uh, uh, is misplaced. But that's my opinion, my view. What I, I guess I'm just questioning whether we're making the best use of our program time. Right. I moved the previous hold on, 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 Carl Tubin, you have a comment. There's a lot I could say, there's a lot I can ask you, but the one thing that really irked me with the shutdown is is $26 billion was lost in the shutdown. It cost us $26 billion plus the $3 billion that had to be paid in back salary. Is that was that productive? We're talking about seventeen trillion dollars, and, uh, and no, it, but every one of those people apparently were paid. Uh, we're I talking about that. trillion dollars that. right now, and a debt that we cannot repay. And if we don't repay it, you're going to see anarchy. And I predict that will happen unless we change the direction that we are going. If that makes no sense to you, then I'm at the wrong group. Anyway, uh, no, 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 no. I mean, this is a, this is a, this is a bipartisan group of both Republicans and Democrats, right. Doctor. Uh, you know, one of the things that, and we've had Tea Party supporters on before. We also have also those from the far left as well on. Uh, but we allow we allow all aspects to be heard. Uh, I can tell you right now that there are a lot of people. The Tea Party has a great groundswell, a great ground game. They have a terrific grassroots effort going, and they've gotten a lot of traction in Congress. That doesn't seem to be going away, though, does it, sir? We want to go back to basics. Get back to the, yes, you're correct. We're not making a, the progress of which I want to make, uh, but we want to go back to basics and restart government back to where we, were, where we were. We can't survive the direction that we're going, and we certainly don't want to have socialism or communism within our, within our country. I'm one of those guys, when we talk progressive, I don't like the word progressive, and, and I think a lot of Democrats are sold a bill of goods and who they really are. Most of them, like this young lady over here, believes in God and the, and the, and the Constitution, the, the basic Constitution that we used to have, not the one that's got, now got 27 amendments uh, to the Constitution. You know, we, we, we going back we, the idea of constitutional uh, originalism, you know, the basic Constitution. Our founders said that we could not put this back together didn't think we were going to keep together. Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Adams, and Abraham Lincoln, they said, we don't think you can keep it together. We hope that we can. We have passed something that gives us freedom. But we're losing our freedoms in this country, and it's time for us, the Tea Party people, who believe in this too, to stand up we and, have, and say something about it. That's what we're doing. We, we, we've, we've actually got one more minute left real quick. We, ha- we have a very large Tea Party base that does listen to this show. Uh, 
they are obviously going to want to hear more from your organization. Is there a website that they can go uh, to? Yeah, AimsEagles.com. Uh, AimsEagles.com. Okay, yeah, we'll post gathering that. GatheringOfTheEagles.com. GatheringOfTheEagles.com, one word. Yeah. Fantastic, because uh, we're coming up on the break real quick. Uh, Dr. obviously, I, I appreciate you coming on. Obviously, this, this, is, this is obviously a topic that gets a lot of people riled out, but we do promote civility. We promote all sides to be heard, and obviously, we appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much, Dr. Ames. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Uh, when we come back, it's a free-for-all. We'll come back and talk about today's show. We'll talk about uh, Tell Me a Story, my favorite segment. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250 from cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. And and we're and we're back live at Shelley's back room, thirteen thirty one F Street. I think we need a drink, Joe. Uh, it's kind of a yeah. We're on the show right now. This is being broadcast live. No, it's being broadcast live. Uh, I'm gonna have my Jack Daniels make it a double because I need it today. And I think everybody else. It is trouble. And, Yep, and we're, yep, we're good. Thanks, Jeff. Oh, and I think maybe Congressman Al may need another martini, too. Hey, uh, folks, i, I got to tell you something. You know, part of the greatness of the show is, is that we have all aspects, all people listening, and we do cover a wide base. Uh, one of the great things about our show is we also – thank you very much, Mr. Congressman Al. Uh, one of the great things about the show is that we allow all – we don't always disagree, but we do promote civil discourse. Uh, Denise Krep, I got to give you credit. I got to give you credit. 
you, it took everything out of you to not just reach over. Uh, but unfortunately, when we deal with civility and in, in, in civil dialogue, uh, you held your tongue. I mean, you, you, were, you, you were amazing. Thanks, Tony. What we saw was some real courage around the table. Sometimes uh, not so much. Well, no, well we, we were invaded. Did not. We, we were, oh, I thought so. Yeah, we were. Yeah. We, were totally. we were invaded, and unfortunately, we were. It seemed like we were on a declining plane, and uh, yeah, we started with Tom so, Delay. So, and we, then we went so, down, yeah, and then we yeah, went yeah, down. Yeah. So, but that's you know that's my assessment of. The I, I I gotta tell you I, I gotta tell you something, folks. I mean I mean if 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 anything proves, and you know and and again you know Majority Leader Tom Delay I mean is is truly a good politi- a fantastic politician. Yeah, I he mean, can he, come anytime. He can He's come anytime. Guy, we love having Tom Delay on on the air. I had no objection to that at all. Absolutely. Uh, he he he. Uh, He's a difficult one to debate with because he states all, almost everything uh, as carved in stone as on Mount Rushmore. Okay. Wait a minute. I got a, I got a couple on your side, a la Harry Waxman, that does the same thing. Nancy Pelosi does the same thing. It is impossible. I think he means Henry. Henry Waxman. What did I say? Oh, Harry Waxman? Harry. 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 I meant Henry Waxman. I meant Henry Waxman. Maybe he's throwing a beard in November. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, when, when have you not heard me say wonderful things about Henry Waxman and Nancy Pelosi? And Nancy Pelosi? Oh, the darling, yeah. Well, what, what is your point? No, my, my point is, no, no, my, my point is, my point is, is that, you know, you know, when you get to that level, sometimes you go back and you see people that are that is their that is their stated point. I was standing behind a camera the day that someone came out of the booth and crawled up on the floor and handed a note to the person who was doing the program, who stopped and read an AP thing that the president had been shot in Dallas. Nice segue, Al. Nice segue. And, and he was doing a twofer with the woman who was doing the woman's program. And she just completely broke up. So I zoomed in on just him. And he then did what television anchors do. He began to ad-lib around the two lines of facts that he had. And by that time, they cut to Walter Cronkite. We were a CBS affiliate. Alan Warren. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. We, We were all stunned. We had to do a program that night. We had to do a half-hour show that night, 
and for reasons I won't go into, the, the, the station was totally unprepared to do that. Uh, so we, frankly, Andy and I went down to a bar, and the only time I've ever been on the air drunk was that night, and we stumbled through this thing, certainly not any great honor of, to the president, lousy television show, that's all we can do. But and, you, you know, and, and uh, I, you talk about having it, you know, embossed in your memory, uh, that's my memory, standing behind this camera and trying to figure out how, how I, you know, am going to save the embarrassment of the woman who broke up and try to get it done. That's but, my you story. know, there, there, was a, there was a great show on PBS this week uh, about uh, the media coverage of what the vaccine looked like uh, the day that Kennedy was shot. And, you know, we remember, Alan Moore, the emotion of Walter Cronkite making the announcement when the flash officially came out of the White House and the flash came from the UP, or AP, or, um, AP rather, uh, that he announced on the air that the president, in fact, had died. Uh, that's a lasting memory. In, in a lot of people's eyes, but it seems that with all the talks surrounding the 50-year mark, uh, and Carl Tewitt, I'm going to ask you the same question. We talk a lot, like Dr. Corsi did in his book, about you know what happened that day and what led up to it, but we sometimes lose the fact of what President Kennedy's legacy was. Uh, Alan, in your mind, what, what was President Kennedy's legacy? You know, that's a it's a really interesting question because I think most most students of history acknowledge that he was not a great president. No. He didn't accomplish all that much. Um, and that the great record of that period came from uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, the, the true the true expert, the, the, the Civil Rights Act, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, and Vietnam War. Um, and and uh, but but he created a tone and a feeling that was unmatched in our, in our history. Part of that had to do with television, and part of it had to do with the man who had a sense of humor. He was really smart. He could engage one-on-one -on -one or one with a group. Um, and uh, he made people... a sense of humor. He, someone asked him who his favorite song was, and he says, well, hail to the chief is nice. <laughs> <laughs> he was funny all the time. He met, he met with the press all the time. Um, talk about uh, accessible transparency, open, uh, accessible. Now, he had his dark side. He had behaviors that would not be accepted today, but were, were, were accepted at the time, uh, particularly were womanizing and so on. They were, they were hidden, and, right. and, the, and the press was his partner. Um, so, but, so, but because of how he died, when he died, his age of death, his wife, his little children, um, he he was he was uh, uh, elevated Car after the fact, right? And and uh, but but as Al said, it it just Carl. blew us all up the day that it happened. Well, let, me go to, let, me go to, let me go to let me go to let me go to Carl. Let me go to Carl real quick because I, I want Carl. I want to ask you. You were intimate with the 1960 campaign. You were the executive director of the Democratic Party, and obviously Kennedy needed Maryland to move forward. Um, but when you look at 
the Kennedy that you dealt with in the 1960 campaign, and then the marginal success of the Kennedy presidency, when you look back at it, if given another term, would Kennedy have been a great president, a good president, or somebody who would have just been marginalized as another Kennedy? I think, I think if, if he had lived, he was going to run to the right in the 64 campaign because he didn't want to, he didn't want to give Bowater any, any uh, more ammunition than, than he might have had. Uh, I think that he would have gotten us out of Vietnam. I think he would have, uh, he, he, had, he had already started to convert, converse with North Vietnam uh, in 1963. He had, he had also reached out to Fidel Castro uh, in, other, in one other country. Uh, he would have he, he really become um, a president who, who was trying to foster world peace and, um, uh, in, the, in, the, in the world. And I think that he would have gone down for that. Um, well, if you, if, you, if, you, if you listen to what the, the author of the book, I've forgotten his name, Dr. Corsi, he listed a whole slew of things that uh, Kennedy was going to do, all of which sounded very good to me. Now, I don't know whether you can rely on Dr. Corsi's interpretation of the history of that period or not, and if I don't want to rely on it with the, the assassination, I can't rely on it that way. But, but he, it's, I get annoyed with people who say that he was not a very good president when he didn't get to finish even his first term. What, what he did was, you know, we had Eisenhower for two terms. Right. And what, what Kennedy was able to do was come in as Alan says, with a smile, with his, with his personality, his jokes, and he uplifted the country. His mm-hmm. inauguration speech uplifted the country. And, and I think that was very, very important for us coming off those eight years of, of Dwight Eisenhower. But well, he was certainly teed up issues for right. Lyndon Johnson. And, and the civil rights, the, the civil rights uh, legislation was, was mostly written Johnson was able to get it through, but he Kennedy was going to depend on Johnson to help him get it through. Denise Crap. But there's also an international aspect of Kennedy. I mean, it, he impacted our country tremendously, but he also impacted in, in those that he probably didn't expect. I, I, I mean, I can remember visiting Ireland um, 20, 30 years ago, and people saying John F. Kennedy. I, I mean, they just loved him in Ireland. And the same thing in Spain. And for me, when I was talking to people in Spain about this, and again, I was there, I was living there about 20 years ago, and I talked to this lady, she said, he was an incredible man. Now, you have to keep in mind, uh, when he was, Spain at that time in 1964 was under Franco. It was under dictatorship. And so for him to represent democracy in places that didn't have democracy was huge. But not, not to take away from what President Kennedy did, I mean, he did some great things. He, you know, the establishment of the Peace Corps. Great international flag. Alan, you were part of the Peace Corps yeah, back yeah, in the day. Yeah. You know, and I'm just thinking, because I know we're running out of time, and we're going to do a show Friday. We are doing a show Friday. I'll answer that again. That'll be your, you know, I think that's a good time to... To go back and look yeah, at this. To talk will. a little bit uh, uh, about Kennedy, because we're not going to solve it. And, I, and there was one other thing that 
has nothing to do with Kennedy that I wanted to mention because today is the birthday, the 150th anniversary of a very short 272-word speech that President Abraham Lincoln gave. And I want to call it out because in in Gettysburg, at the dedication of of a new soldier cemetery there, four months after the battle, the three-day battle, we talk often about about civility, about getting along, about compromise. The biggest failure in American history to get political compromise occurred in the lead-up to the Civil War. A deal was available. It was an ugly deal. It was an ugly deal, but it was a deal that was available that, that, that Lincoln was prepared to accept to let the southern states continue slavery, but they couldn't secede and they would have to allow the new territories, new states, to, to not be uh, slave states. It didn't happen. It could have happened. It should have happened. It didn't, and 2% of America was killed in that war. 600,000 Americans died in that war. That was 50% more than World War II in a a population that was four times as large. It was an amazing speech that followed upon a two-hour speech. This was about two minutes, and and yet it, it, it... in all of our talk about how great things maybe used to be, that was our biggest ever failure in uh, in politics to to the missed opportunity to get a deal. Well, with that, what I'm going to do is we're going to do uh, a special broadcast from American University uh, coming up here uh, on Friday. Uh, we've got a special live edition from. Uh, the chapel at American University, where we're going to be in front of about 250 political science students, and it's going to be more—it's going to be more geared to what you're usually accustomed to hearing on backroom politics, more of of the insider theory, unsanitized view. Sometimes it's pretty, eh, sometimes not so much. But uh, the kids love it. We enjoy getting out there, and we're going to have a good time with that. And we're going to talk. The kids are so bright. I know. I know. You sit there and think so annoying. So annoying. <laughs> they actually have facts, Alan. Thanks. Uh, but uh, so that's going to be live 10:30 Eastern time on Friday. A special live edition of Backroom Politics from American American University. So uh, with that, uh, want to give a special shout out, special thanks to former Majority Leader Tom Delay for joining us today. Uh, Dr. Corsi, Dr. Ames, thank you guys also for joining us here on Backroom Politics. Uh, with that, on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Alan Moore, Denise Krepp, and Carl Tuvin, this is a very humble moderator, Justin Russell. Uh, we will be on Friday live from American University, uh, not from Shelley's Backroom, which if Bob were here, happy anniversary to Bob and Gail. Bob's not here because it was his anniversary, but if Bob had been here, he would have said, he would have said Shelley's Backroom, Al, Bob, it's a place to be. <laughs> That's right. We'll see you next. We'll see you Friday, 10:30 Eastern Time on Blog Talk Radio. Have a great week, everybody.